<laughs> hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Happy New Year! Can you believe it, man? It's already 2016. And 16. Um, which means that this year is to the teens what 1996 was to the 90s. What 06 was to the aughts. I don't know about your mind, but mine is kind of blown by that. It's like we're living in the future. And all we did to travel here was just wait around and not die yet. Cool. All right. Well, you know, I sent a few invites out. You know what? I'm going to try to call this guy at the break. Call guy at break. Let me write that down. Call guy at break. There's this guy. Um, You guys know Sam Husseini, right? He runs this thing called the Institute for Public Accuracy. And every morning he sends out press releases saying, hey, you could interview this guy, this guy, or this guy. And it's not always up my alley, but sometimes it is. And he's got one today. I don't know who the guy is. He's the director of the Institute for Gulf Affairs, whatever that is. Funded by this or that government. I have no idea. I don't know. But according to Sam Husseini, he's got interesting things to say about uh, the Riyadh versus Tehran conflict tearing the Middle East apart right now, and specifically um, has reaction to the executions that took place in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. I'm going to talk about that a little bit here in a minute. Uh, yeah. uh, so that might happen, but it doesn't matter either way because uh, what's most important is Gareth is going to be here. He's my favorite reporter in the whole wide world. Um, I guess with this interview, it'll be celebrating nine years of talking to Gareth Porter about the things that he writes. Um, my first interview with Gareth Porter, you can go back and listen to it, January 2007. I says to him, I says, oh my God, Gareth Porter, uh, when the president announced the surge into Iraq, he also announced that everything wrong there is all Iran's fault and that maybe he's going to attack their Revolutionary Guard bases. What in the hell? And Gareth said, don't worry, that's just a bunch of propaganda for the rubes. They might attack Iran, but if they do, it won't be until late spring or early summer. And here's why. And he explained how he knew. And actually, it was pretty simple. It was because that's what Condoleezza Rice said to the State Department gaggle of reporters, uh, quite different than what she had told the Fox News audience. Yeah, we might just bomb them. And then she told the serious reporters that, well, you know, by this summer, we'll know whether this or that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I decided I like this Porter guy, man. He's smart. And then I started reading all this stuff. And then he wrote about 10,000 articles. And so I interviewed him about 12,000 times. He wrote his book, Manufactured Crisis. No, I actually have interviewed him more than 200 times. 220, 230-something times now. Um, when he wrote his book, Manufactured Crisis, I did 10 interviews in a row with him about each chapter of that book. 
Love me some Gareth Porter, man. He's just great. And, you know, his one before this was about Yemen. Huge story about Yemen at Truthout. I need to pull that up here. Is that Truthout? Truthout, Gareth. And um, and then his brand new one is at Middle East Eye. And check him out. The one at Middle East Eye. I love this stuff, man. U.S. military leadership resisted Obama's bid for regime change in Syria, Libya. He's right about this. This is hilarious to me. It's um, unendingly ironic and horrible and instructive and wonderful all at the same time. Uh, the Pentagon oftentimes serves as a break on the unwise and unworthy passions of the civilians and the eggheads at the think tanks who tell them what to do. And uh, not that they're the good guys, just that the civilian times are oftentimes even worse than them, even worse than the generals, who, if they had it their way, would just stay at war forever. But still, they want to pick and choose more carefully whose side they're on in these things, I think. So, um, yeah, Gareth Porter, man, U.S. military leadership resisted Obama's bid for regime change in Syria and Libya. There's really no surprise here. And we've been covering this on this show for... Jeez, five full years now since the outbreak of the Arab Spring. How Obama has, you know, they tried to back the dictatorship in Egypt as long as they could. And they had to end up acquiescing to an elected government there for a very little while until they could overthrow it. But in Libya, and oh, and of course they did their pseudo-regime change in, in Yemen, they had a hardcore clamp down, a very violent uh, clamp down in Bahrain and in uh, the Shia provinces of Saudi Arabia, which we're going to get back to in a minute here. But when it came to Gaddafi and Assad in Libya and Syria, Obama took the side not just of the Arab Spring or the street. He took the side of the jihadists. He took the side of the veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. And, you know, I mean, for you longtime listeners to this show, you've heard me wondering about, man, Obama really wants to go down in history as the president who backed al-Qaeda in Syria? I mean, not like Ronald Reagan who backed al-Qaeda in Afghanistan back when it was the cool thing to do, but post-September 11th, post-Iraq War II, where al-Qaeda in Iraq killed 4,000 of our guys? Well... Probably three of the 4,000, 4,500, probably 500 of those were killed by Shia militias. And then out of the 4,000, Al-Qaeda in Iraq could claim at least a couple of those if the rest just belonged to the, you know, broader-based Sunni insurgency. And, um, and then, yeah, the answer has been, yeah. But it's no surprise when reporters like Mark Perry, a Pentagon reporter, reported about the war in Yemen, that the way these generals talk is that, you know, look, John McCain wants to complain that we're flying as Iran's air force, as Iran's air force in Iraq against the Islamic State. But we're flying as Al-Qaeda's air force in Yemen. So which is worse? 
And now they're still doing it, right? It's not like a bunch of generals have been insubordinate and resigned and went on the Sunday shows to denounce Obama's Yemen war in favor of al-Qaeda that they've been bombing there all these years, which has only made them stronger, but probably not deliberately. But outright fighting on their side against the Houthis? You can see why generals, generals told Mark Perry, go back and listen to my interview with Mark Perry about Yemen, where he's talking about, you know, the word in the halls at the Pentagon is they can't stand this. They're happy to go to war all day, every day, but for Al-Qaeda instead of against them? You could see how that would stick in their craw a little bit when they consider themselves American patriots and public servants and all that crap. Unlike the civilians who don't even pretend that those lies, you know? Some of these generals believe in that crap. Don't they? Maybe? A little? Nah, not really. Remember Admiral Fallon, who stopped the war with Iran in 2007, told Dick Cheney, over my dead body, pal, you're not doing it. It's not happening. He was the head of CENTCOM at the time. But he's the same guy. He said, look, the Iranians are ants, and when the time comes, we will crush them. So, you know, these are our, our great humanitarians there, Still ironic to me. And, of course, you ask Gareth Porter. He's a progressive of some stripe or another, but you don't hear him blaming capitalism all day. He says the heart of the empire is the generals themselves. Uh, the Pentagon itself is uh, the beast at the center of this entire thing. Which is pretty good, you know? Not blaming capitalism or some crap for leftists, you know? Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I really should have that one set to play longer and louder. I love those guys, man. All right, anyway, I tried to call the dude at the break, and then and his phone number said, no, man, you need a different number because this one doesn't work. That was the recording. I went, do-do-do. No, man, you need a different number. This one doesn't work. Wouldn't that be funny if I was the guy on the telephone recording error messages? No, man, you mess it up, dude. Okay. It, it wouldn't be that funny, just a little bit. Listen, this lady, uh, Janet, I believe, Reitman, did a great job on this write-up of Guantanamo Bay for Rolling Stone. It's really good, and I'm going to interview her on Wednesday. And also, uh, this guy, Shea Machine Riley, we've interviewed him before on the show. He's in the Army uh, still, but uh, just barely. But he wrote this great thing for Liberty.me about the petrodollar and what it all means. Very interesting. And he's going to be on Wednesday to talk about that as well. 
And then look out, Army, because Shea Machine is getting out of the Army. And when he's out of the Army, he's coming on the show to say things he can't say while he's still in it. So, how do you like that, jerks? I think it's too late for them to stop Lawson, right? Saudi executions. Nah, let's talk about the Oregon thing. We gotta talk about the Oregon thing. So here's my position. The government is always wrong about everything, always. Don't be ridiculous. You don't have to be a right-wing, patriot, populist, militia guy to think that the government, whoever they are, whatever executive branch agency, is worse than them. Of course they are. I don't really know. I saw people claiming that, you know, actual Nazis and white supremacists were going to join up with the guys there, but I don't know that that's true. And even if it is, it shouldn't necessarily reflect bad on the people who are doing what they're doing. Not that I really think it's the smartest thing in the world to do, what they're doing. Uh, but they seized an empty government building. They didn't threaten anyone. They didn't chase any way, anyone away with rifles pointed at them or anything like that. They didn't actually hurt anyone or do anything. They're just protesting. But they're right-wingers, not hippies, so they brought their rifles with them. But that shouldn't mean that it has to come to violence. And, you know, I don't think it really needs to be said, but I will point out that these guys are not libertarians. And therefore, they do not have a clear concept of what exactly is aggression and what's not. And I think there's a possibility that they could do the wrong thing. Remember Sheriff Mack at the the first Bundy conflict back, whatever, a year and a half ago or whatever it was, where he bragged. It's not like he admitted. He claimed, yeah, our plan is to, to put all women up front in the group, so that as as human shields. And then he didn't even really say, so that they won't shoot. He was sort of saying, so that if they shoot, they got to shoot a bunch of women, and that'll make them look really bad. And I'm paraphrasing, okay, but go back and check. I've actually met Sheriff Mack before, and I think he's kind of stupid. I appreciate that he's an anti-government extremist, but I wouldn't let him plan things for me. Like, should he put all the women up front of the group when they are very likely to get into a firefight with a bunch of feds armed with machine guns? Uh, so anyway, you know, the Bundys and whatever, again, they're populist right-wingers. They're not libertarians. And so um, my politics and theirs don't necessarily line up exactly. However... A couple of uh, very important points are getting lost in all the identity politics of who these uh, the guys occupying the building are. The point is they're protesting the absolutely criminal persecution of this old man and his son um, over a non-malicious fire that they set, which was just to... Um, uh, the first one got a little bit out of control, but they put it out without even any help from the feds. It burned a few acres of federal land, hurt no people. They put it out themselves. 
years before, way back in 2001. Then in 2006, they had started some fires as backfires because of lightning strike fires that had been started. And they were trying to protect their property. And it worked. And caused no problem. And the government prosecuted them. Seriously, no threat, no malicious intent, no criminal intent. Fire did cross the line onto so-called federal property, as though the federal government is people and can own, quote-unquote, own property like an actual human being can. But no harm, no foul. But anyway, they prosecuted them. Are you ready to be shocked and amazed and surprised? They prosecuted them under the Anti-Terrorist and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, passed after the Oklahoma bombing, the PATCON operation, gone out of control, FBI. And so they passed this law, and they're using it against this family, this innocent family. And it's pretty obvious because of the history that the Bureau of Land Management wants their land, and that's why they're persecuting them. They're trying to make their lives miserable enough that they'll give up and give up their property. And so the judge sentences them. They're convicted. The jury goes along with this because they're tools. They're convicted. The judge sentences the man and his son to, I think, three months and 12 months. They do their time, but then the judge retires So the Bureau of Land Management appeals the sentence to the new judge who adjusts their sentence upwards. And now, after having completed their sentence, they are now back in prison. This is what the protesters are protesting up there. This is... And this is an old man. This is a 70-something-year-old man. They're locking him up for years. What amounts to very probably a life sentence. A life sentence. For for setting a fire that accidentally crossed an imaginary line, but which was not sent in any form of vandalism or arson or any actual criminal intent whatsoever. Can you believe this? The only thing I don't understand is why aren't they occupying the judge's house? Um, but then the other very notable thing and very troubling thing about this is to watch all the leftists, especially on Twitter, demanding that the double standard be erased and that these people be abused and have their rights violated the same way they would if they were black. Instead of saying that everybody ought to have their rights protected, the left theory now is no one should. That way it's equal. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, We'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. 
Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment, and the right to keep and bear arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Talking about the Oregon thing here. Uh, You know, I'm just going off the top of my head some things that I think about it. Uh, I'm absolutely pro-militia, conceptually speaking. I'm for uh, right-wing, left-wing, libertarian, even, nonpartisan, just local neighborhood and county and whatever kind of militias. I think all that's fine. Um, I'm for that. I don't necessarily trust the judgment of whoever happens to be running whichever particular right populist gun-toting group. So, uh, you know, uh, being for people having militias in order to defend themselves and outright supporting this, that, or the other particular one. Those are different concepts. In this case, you know, these guys on CNN right now, the the quote on CNN right now is, if force is used, we will defend ourselves. You know, if you read left-wing Twitter, you would think that if someone shows up to a protest with a rifle, that means that they are a terrorist and that they're threatening to murder someone, right? Remember, this is how they did the Branch Davidians, too. They never told you. The Branch Davidians have a gun business. You know, out of a hundred of them, two or three of these guys run a gun business. And that's why they have guns. It's because they're in the buying and selling guns business. Like mm, 50,000 other Texans. Right? Instead, they made it seem as though, well, see, they're stockpiling weapons. For Armageddon. Right? As though one day soon, the Davidians were planning on marching on downtown Waco and taking it over. And, I guess, like Gaddafi, killing every last man, woman, and child in Benghazi. Whatever nonsense you need to hear to be afraid. And now, what? Would Henry David Thoreau or Martin Luther King bring a rifle to a protest? No, they wouldn't. In fact, it would be the FBI COINTELPRO agent among the Black Panthers who would be recommending let's all bring shotguns down to the Capitol building. Go back and look. It was the rat, the, the Asian guy, I forgot his name, who was uh, having the Black Panthers bring guns out. It can be counterproductive to your message. On the other hand, these men have the right to bear arms. They have the right to defend themselves. And they know that they're putting themselves in a risky position, taking over this building, occupying this building. But they're saying, hey, we don't want to be massacred. Maybe if we bring our rifles, they'll think twice, you know, enough rifles. They'll think twice about getting into a battle. And we'll have more incentive to negotiate an end to this thing. Look at what happened at the Bundy Ranch last time. I don't know how far and wide this video got, but I saw one of the videos from the Bundy Ranch where the cops are, I don't know, there's probably two dozen of them, 
they're dressed in their full black ninja SWAT fatigues. They're carrying at least MP5s, AR-15s, and probably other fully automatic weapons. And they're slowly advancing on the crowd. And then they start looking around. And they see all the different people who have guns trained back on them. And they decide, you know what? Let's start walking backwards. Like Homer Simpson through the hedge. Uh, Bye. And the point being, if there had been half as many people there with half as many guns, the feds would have massacred them all. But they didn't have enough guys at the time, so they backed down. White privilege and whatever. The cops would have massacred every last one of them, except that the people were capable of defending themselves at least to some degree. Um, and by the way, uh, I, I do not believe it is the case that the people there on the scene listened to that jackass Sheriff Mack and put women at the front of the crowd. I don't think they did that. That was just his stupid idea that he later said, yeah, you know what my smart idea was, or her, her. But they didn't do, I don't believe that they went along with that, the other guys. But anyway, uh, the point is, the point is that all regular folk, I don't mean to sound like uh, commie class warfare, because it's not, it's libertarian class warfare. It's the state versus the rest of us. And... You know what? Libertarian class war or class theory, uh, you know, if you read Sheldon Richmond and Anthony Gregory, there are certain overlaps with leftist class theory, obviously. But what we're talking about here are outgroups, people who don't have political power. And, of course, the way things are in America now, where everything is corrupt where no one believes in the system because everybody knows that everything is corrupt. Where everybody knows that they have no shot at real participation in power in this country. No ability to influence the decisions that are made, as far as they're concerned, a million miles away. It's all taxation and regulation without representation. And so they're pissed. That's what the right wing, everything from the Tea Party movement to the militias and everything else are. It's right wingers who know that, who know for a fact, because it's a true scientific fact. They have no influence in the Republican Party. They don't belong in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a bunch of billionaires preying on them. And they know that. So what? how are they supposed to participate in politics when they know that they're not welcome? They don't have a say. Just the same as the Occupy movement and every brand of progressive and leftist to the left of the liberals in the Democratic Party. Who know that they don't have a say. They don't have a say. Go back and watch the Democratic Party uh, convention in L.A. where they go, okay, let's take a voice vote on this resolution about Palestine, about Israel, and... Uh, the way it was, I believe it was, uh, all the pro-Palestinian types were opposed and shouted no. And they totally won. The nays had it. I may have it reversed that the nay, that it was the eyes have it, whatever, but it was the pro-Palestinian side that won. No question. 
And Mayor Viglarosa, or whatever his name is, uh, at the time just said, yeah, well, whatever. The Israel lobby gets their way anyway. And that's just one issue. But it was so blatant. It's the Democratic Party convention. Voice, voice vote. Nays and yays. Come on. And the Palestinian side obliterated the, oh, poor little Israel is the innocent victim. We should give them billions of dollars of more F-16s for killing little children with resolution, whatever it was. Um, and then it just kills me, man. It's a literal pain in my neck to read all the liberals and leftists with their slippy, sl- well, not as much the leftists, more the liberals, with their slippery logic. That says, look at these white people with guns occupying a building in protest and the government doesn't do anything to them. But meanwhile, peaceful black protesters come out over the murder of Mike Brown and they get faced down with the 3rd Infantry Division, for Christ's sake. And remember what happened at Ferguson? That was half the outrage. Mike Brown, yeah, but then look at what happened to the protesters that night. When the cops brought out every bit of military equipment they could find for a 100 miles. And they're right about that double standard. They go, what's going on here? But instead of saying, hey, man, white privilege for everyone, that's what they call it, actual human rights for everyone. Instead, they're saying, look at the light touch of the Obama administration dealing with this sedition. Crush them. I mean, go look at at left-wing Twitter right now. It's amazing. I love Bitcoin, but there's just something incredibly satisfying about having real, fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity disks are so neat. They're one-ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve Notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate 100 bucks to The Scott Horton Show, he'll send you one. Learn more at Facebook.com slash Commodity Discs. CommodityDiscs.com. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. All right, kids, welcome back to the show. By the way, I'm predicting a peaceful resolution to this thing. I think Obama will negotiate. He didn't want to have a Waco, man. If he wanted to have a Waco, he'd have had one back at uh, the last Bundy thing. Although, on the other hand, I read someone saying, hey, the fact that they backed down last time means they can't this time. But I'm thinking, yeah, they can, too. Especially when this resentencing of this old man and his son is the poster child for things that need to be corrected. And, yeah, it's true. They're white, and that ought to really help. If they were black, hardly anybody would care about them at all. Or if they were Hispanic. You know, like Dodger Stadium in L.A., they said, hey, all you spicks, beat it. And they just bulldozed an entire neighborhood and built Dodger Stadium. 
I believe the direct quote of the government at the time was, what are you going to do about it, bitch? That's what I thought. And so that's where the Dodgers play baseball now. Nobody cared about them. Uh, but so, yeah, politically speaking, you know, where are all the state representatives in Oregon going to bat for this old man and his son who actually didn't do anything to anybody? And in, in what ways are they fighting back against the Bureau of Land Management for tyrannizing the people of their little pseudo-sovereign state? Huh? It makes sense. It should be good politics for them to say, no, you can't treat these people like this. Put this old man in life in prison over a small fire that didn't even hurt anyone. After he's already done his time and been released when he shouldn't have done any time in the first place. And then, yeah, man, this is what I've been saying since my very first radio show of my own on Say It Ain't So on Free Radio Austin in the fall of 1998 is, hey, man, the best of the left and the best of the right, we got to get it together. Our enemy is the state. Regular people who care about human rights of different descriptions got to start caring about the rights of each other. And having each other's back on these things so that, you know, maybe the slightest difference can be made, huh? But when the average leftist and the average rightist hate each other more than the police state that oppresses them both, well, look where we end up. My entire goddamn Twitter feed is leftists more or less urging Obama to massacre these men now because that's what would happen if they were poor and black which is of course true look at move in fact look at the branch davidians almost half of them were black 30 or 40 of them or something were black third of them that probably has something to do with the atf and the fbi's motive there although yeah. They were all de facto racial minorities by the day of the fire, right? And that's the thing of it, too. That's the thing that really gets me, man. I'll never get over this, either. It's like Jeff Tucker was saying. It's so much nicer to believe that people are better than the government. That it's the government that's the problem. But in reality, on a lot of these issues, the people are worse or they're just as bad and I can testify that uh, random sample more or less of upper middle class northwest Austin white housewives were all for almost unanimously were for the uh, firebombing and mass murder of the Branch Davidians back in 1993. I was 15 and sacking groceries, and I heard them for weeks. The whole thing lasted, the siege lasted six weeks. And I remember them over and over and over again. I say they just go in there and end it. 
end it. And they knew that end it meant kill all of them. Kill whoever it takes. The women, the babies, the elderly. Whoever is keeping the price of right, the price is right off of its normal schedule. Whoever is uh, responsible for preempting days of our lives must pay. Kill all of them. Which was not the official position of the government. The official position of the government was, ha, they all killed themselves. <laughs> we would never do such a thing. Which is a lie. Of course. Both things are lies. Um, but, you know, if they had held a referendum among the housewives of Northwest Austin, Texas, there's no death too good for a Branch Davidian. You know, because TV said that they were bad. And TV won't shut up about them when I'm trying to watch Days of Our Lives. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to see the divide. Back then, it was only the these kind of populist right-wing patriot types who were upset about Waco. The rest of the entire right fell in line behind the cops. They're cops. They can do whatever they want. They can kill whoever they want. How dare you tell the FBI, no, I'm not coming out. Kill them. Burn them. Say no to a cop. Why, don't you know that the cops are my make-believe extension of myself who exist in this world to force everyone to do what I want? You can't say no to them. You're breaking my tiny little psyche here. Saying no, defying the will of my God, the state. Cried tens of millions of American conservatives and liberals. You know, the day, the USA Today poll had 93%, 93% of the American people were for the tank raid on the Branch Davidians after they saw the result. A fire that killed 86 people, although that's a bit misleading. Many of the women and children were exploded to death by Delta Force bombs and or crushed by falling concrete. But, you know, still the same murderers, I was clarifying. It was, you know, the ones who weren't already crushed to death by concrete were the ones who were suffocated and or burnt to death in the fires. But anyway, 93% of the American people said, yeah, good, now I can finally watch, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some other soap opera names. One Life to Live. Now I can get back to whammies on Press Your Luck. 93%. So, anyway, I guess the message there is be careful, Oregonians, the American people, or, uh, you know, whoever you are, militia guys up there occupying this building. The American people are uh, very likely to betray you and... And and wish for your mass extermination, and the longer this goes on, the worse it is for you. 
I mean, then again, depending on what TV says, right? But, I guess I still am speculating that Obama right now was thinking, oh man, I don't want to have a Waco massacre my last year as the president. But then again, I also thought that he would say, damn, I don't really want to go down in history as the president who backed Al-Qaeda in Syria for five years. Do I? And the answer to that was, yeah, he doesn't seem to give a damn at all, does he? He will happily go down in history as the president who didn't even really bother with plausible deniability. Oh, I'll tell you what, guys. Let's just, uh, we'll call it the Army of Conquest now. Army of Conquest. That sounds good. That sounds secular. (laughs) Never mind all those heads rolling on the ground. All right, when we get back, I got more other things to talk about. The Iraq and Syria war, especially. Oh, and making a murderer. I meant to say that in this segment. Have you guys been watching that on Netflix? Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton, and hey, I heard back from that guy. So here in about uh, 10 minutes, I'm going to interview him, get a little bit about Saudi Iran and the execution of all these guys over the weekend and what it all means. It's a hell of a thing. So, you know, I had heard, um, I had read a headline or something and kind of filed it away to maybe someday, but then somebody tweeted me last night and said, Scott Horton, you got to look at making a murderer on Netflix. So I stayed up till 2 in the morning. Uh, watching, I got through, I guess, uh, episode five. It's a ten-part thing so far. And, um, well, I don't think I can spoil it for you, because they, it, they come right out with it, basically, in the first, in the first episode. It's the story of a guy who was framed up, maliciously prosecuted for a rape, or an attempted rape, that he did not commit. They did everything they could to cover up and obstruct and make sure he stayed in prison, even when other cops from other jurisdictions are coming to them and saying, we know who did this and it's somebody else. They knew it. They didn't care. They were all guilty as hell, all of them. The judge, the prosecutor, the police department, guilty conspirators. But then they got a DNA test, the Innocence Project, by the pubic hair of his chinny-chin-chin of the rapists. They got one hair, and it proved that he didn't do it, and it proved that, guess who did it? The guy that everybody already knew did it, that they were pretending they didn't know. So he gets out. 
So he sues them. And they were so criminal in the way that they framed him. They were at real risk that they would not be covered by insurance. And that their actual department would have to pay this guy millions of dollars. And so they framed him for a murder. And I haven't gotten this far in the story yet, but quite apparently it worked. They convicted him. And he's now doing time for a murder that is the most laughable thing in the world. And not the murder itself, but the case against him. is It's as laughable and ridiculous as it is horrifying and criminal what they did here. Um, as, and it's just, it's equally as transparent for anyone to see. And I'm not to the part where anybody figures out exactly who murdered the girl, but for right now, I presume the police guilty of even murdering the girl just to frame the guy. Why not? They certainly decided that they were going to exploit it. Uh, the murder of this girl and pin it on this guy that they hated. Yeah, just as simple as that. And what's fun about it is, it, this story is just the nth degree of it, but when you watch it, then you realize, you know that this is how it works all the time. This is how cops are. You think cops get master's degree in logic? They figure out who they want to pin it on, and then they pin it on them. Inductive, rather than deductive thinking. Always. Always. And they don't even need, and you can see where they skate the line here between actively conspiring to obstruct justice and plant evidence and all this, and also simply just sticking with their narrative and believing it and being determined to never consider any alternative theory and only what they want to believe. You can almost split the difference between whether they're outright lying or whether they believe their own lies. At least, you know, some of the characters involved in the thing. And you know that it, you know, it's a freaking scary thing to watch, man. They could do this to you. They could do this to anybody that you know, love, care about. Cop decides he doesn't like you. They could pin a murder on you. And all that crap about, well, don't worry, because Matlock is going to, you know, force the real guilty party to confess on the witness stand at the last minute. That doesn't happen. Matlock is correct insofar as the prosecutors don't give a damn whether they're telling the truth or not. They just like winning. Whoever the cops bring them, they nail to the wall. Simple as that. And, hey, if you got Matlock can get you off, great. If not, tough. That's their job. It's like somebody who experiments on little puppies all day. They just, eventually they go, ah, well, whatever. I just don't care about puppies. That's how they get along in the world is, you know, they're not going to sit there and cry about each puppy they torture, right? So they just decide, I guess I'm the kind of person who doesn't mind torturing puppies after all, huh? And then they just move on with their life. That's the same thing with government employees and you and your life. They don't care what happens to you. They don't care if your little brother really did it or not. They're more than happy to force a false confession on anyone. More than happy to. All of them. And the proof of that is that all these cops got away with everything they've done. And all the Netflix in the world can't stop them either. 
Anyway, let me talk about something more important here. Trump. Hillary Clinton created ISIS with Obama. Okay, now listen. I'm not saying I'm fooled by this guy or you should be fooled by him. He's pure evil. He's probably worse than the average politician in more than a few ways. But one of the things that's great about him is he doesn't have that filter that any other politician would have where they just don't say that. He's perfectly happy to go directions that they others wouldn't go. And so he's right about this. Now, I hope he doesn't spin this like, oh, boo-hoo, Obama, you know, it's because he's a Muslim or whatever. He's not really going to tell the truth about um, how it was that they created ISIS. And created, it's a little bit of a strong word, but that's all right. Let's clarify. Go ahead and fight about it. And here's the thing about this. This is the front runner. This is not some guy said. So, obviously, I think the media, so far the media is just ignoring it as best they can. But this is going to come back. He's going to keep saying this. Reporters are going to have to start asking her to respond to this. He's going to have to start clarifying what he means by that. And wonderful. Yes, indeed. Let's talk about who is on whose side in the war in Syria. Democrats, Republicans, you bastards. So I hope Trump has got somebody smart to give him a good briefing on this stuff, to give him a good rundown so that he can just completely smack her silly with this stuff. Schlong her with it. Oh, yeah, you're arming up the moderates. It's that all the moderates do is sell all their guns to ISIS and Al-Qaeda for money. Boy, that was easy. Yeah, the moderates. They're called the mythical moderates everywhere but Washington, D.C., because all they really are is a gun-running operation for the head-chopping jihadists. Everyone knows that. Simple. Simple. What a fun election campaign season this could be. I'm not saying anyone should support this guy. I'm just saying it's nice to be able to laugh with and at somebody on that level of political power, at least at this moment. That guy's hilarious. I can't help it. He's hilarious. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, man. I missed all this. Uh, I didn't get to this. 52,000 killed in Iraq in 2015. And that's like 2007, 2008 numbers, 2006 and 7 numbers. Horrible. Just as bad as the worst time of the Civil War of Iraq War II. And as Patrick Coburn says, ISIS may be weakened by coordinated attacks, but it's far from being overcome. They, they're they withdrawing, but again, turning the Islamic State, the place, back into the Islamic State, the group, is not much of a win, if you could even do that. If you can drive them out of power in Raqqa, Mosul, Fallujah, you still have only driven them back into the neighborhoods, and they're going to be sniping at you the day after tomorrow, too. So um, the the question of what really is to come next, what state is to rule Sunni stand that can exclude these guys? No one has a plan. No one has an answer. Oh, except Kasich, who says, the Saudis will work it out. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. 
They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right. Well, it turned out Ali uh, Ahmed got caught up on another interview, so we're going to have him back on the show. Uh, we're going to have him on the show tomorrow instead. Oops. I could have had him at the top of the hour there, but it was the music was already playing, and I just didn't want to rush. Too bad, too, because it's a really important story here, okay? Saudi Arabia executes 47 people, including this uh, Shia cleric, Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr. And, you know, it's one of those uh, today's the first day of the rest of your life kind of moments, I think, man, where obviously this has already been going on. It's horrible. This so-called sectarian war in the Middle East, it's really a mostly a proxy war between Tehran and Riyadh. And um seems like... I mean, obviously, it's crime. But also, it seems, as Hillary Clinton said, like a mistake. That's all she said about it. Fun fact about Saudi Arabia, virtually all the oil is where virtually all the Shia live. In this uh, majority Sunni country with uh, this Saudi royal family dictatorship that rules over it. And... So, you know, think of it like you're the king for a minute. Your choice is either, hey, come to some kind of accommodation with these people or murder their leader and that'll show them. And so the Saudi king has taken the, uh, yeah, don't denounce me or I will kill you attitude. That's what they call the rule of law. It's not too much different than the one we have here in the States. Um, but, uh, then, so this led to an attack on the Saudi embassy in Tehran and, uh, I don't know what all it is. They were calling each other's ambassadors and stuff. And then of course, all the uh, pro Sunni side get to point their fingers at the Iranians and say, you guys execute almost as many people as the Americans. You guys are death penalty fanatics. Oh, you hang them from cranes instead of cutting their heads off, huh? How, you know, I guess we're the barbarians, not you then, huh? And back and forth with this. Yes, the U.S. government shares the exact morality of the Saudi kingdom and the Ayatollah's regime in Iran. That's right. And anyway, only they have more power to kill more and get away with much worse uh, but anyway, um, so it's just a further ratcheting up of tensions 
between the Sunni and the Shia. I think they also... Um, it wasn't the one kid, the 17-year-old protester who had been sentenced to be beheaded and then his corpse, what's left of his body, crucified. I think that has not happened yet. It was a different young protester here. I lost. I had a story like this. Where it was still young people executed simply for protesting. Simply for protesting. This is the American's best friend in the world. And... Uh, Oh, and then I like this. Saudis announce end to Yemen ceasefire. Airstrikes never halted throughout nine-day, quote, truce. Writes Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. After nine days of more or less constant airstrikes against targets inside Yemen, Saudi Arabia announced today that they are abandoning their ceasefire and that it is because the Shiite Houthis are violating the terms. There's an American war that you're just not supposed to care about or know about at all. It just keeps going on. Ten months in now. Anyway. Saudis face diplomatic fallout. Yeah, the Saudi kingdom has decided to sever all ties with Iran. Iraqi officials are suggesting the recently reopened Baghdad embassy is now unwelcome. Iraqi officials, meaning Iraqi Shia stan. And, you know, I'm sorry to be repetitious, but that's what's going on here. Is the Americans... Uh, I don't mean innocently in any way. It was absolutely a premeditated murder plot with outright deliberate lies throughout in order to justify it. Uh, the only accidental part I'm referring to is the consequences. When George W. Bush invaded Iraq, he invaded Iraq for Iran. And not only did he create a new Iraqi Shia stan, but he fought an entire civil war for them to give them the capital city, too, and kick all the Sunnis out of it. There were one or two Sunni neighborhoods left in southwest Baghdad, but then again, they've been getting kicked out of there lately, too. Uh, it's virtually an entirely Shiite city now, with the new Iraqi Shiistan basically being all the land from Baghdad down to Kuwait, from Baghdad to, you know, east to the Iranian border. So, as you heard discussed in the interview with Seymour Hersh last week, the Americans in 2006 decided, oops, huh, we didn't mean to fight a war for Iran, but <clears throat> now that we did, I guess uh, let's double down on our dealings with the Saudis, our friends the Saudis, and let's start back in Mujahideen in Lebanon, in Syria. At the same time, they're backing the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq, but renaming them the concerned local citizens. As long as they'll continue marginalizing the jihadists, they had already started, you know, uh, marginalizing at that time. But this was an attempt to, I guess, limit the damage of how much they'd empowered 
the Iranians. And what's funny is that's what the Iranians always wanted. If you look at the Dawah Party and the Supreme Islamic Council, who were Iran's sock puppets inside Iraq during Iraq War II, they always wanted what they called strong federalism, meaning break the country up. They have their alliance with the Kurds and keep the Kurds in the confederation of quote-unquote Iraq. But as far as the Sunni Arabs are concerned, in the Anbar province and up to Mosul, no longer in Baghdad, kicked out of Baghdad, screw them. They were the minority dictatorship for, what, centuries after all, right? More or less. And um, at least a century. I shouldn't go too far back into Ottoman imperial history, because what the hell do I know, but at least for a century. And so uh, the Iranians' attitude was they didn't really want to rule all of Sunnistan anyway. They just wanted the capital. Thanks a lot, Americans. So the American policy of splitting Iraq at that point and arming up the concerned local citizens really only helped, you know, which they thought, I guess, was an attempt to check the Iranians, uh, was simply helping to solidify Iran's gains and their victory in uh, what amounted to driving the Sunni population of Iraq into the arms of the Islamic State. Eventually. I, I'm out of time for this segment. Obviously, I didn't get to explain it all. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. On the line, I got our best guy, Gareth Porter. Gareth, welcome back. How are you, man? Hi, Scott. Happy New Year to you. I'm fine. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Uh, Very great to have you on the show. Everybody, you know Gareth. Uh, The reason why is because I interview him every time he writes a thing because it's just great, man. It's the subject matter, and and he's always right. And they're always lying, and he always sees right through the lies and tells the truth instead and everything, and it's just great, man. And you can find what he writes at Middle East Eye and at Truth Out. And he wrote the book, the book, never mind the rest of them. This is the book on the Iranian nuclear program. It's called Manufactured Crisis, the truth behind the Iran nuclear scare. And it's... The book on the Iranian nuclear program, trust me. Okay, so we got two here at issue, and I think I want to take the truth out one second because it can sort of be chapter three of the two major points that you're getting to here in the newest piece at Middle East Eye. U.S. military leadership resisted Obama's bid for regime change in Syria and in Libya. Very complicated story. Please uh, go ahead and take us through it here, Gareth. Right. And uh, let me just introduce this story by suggesting that the headline 
resisted may be a bit too strong. Um, I actually tried to uh, use the, the language in the story that the, the military leadership in the United States, that is the Joint Chiefs of Staff specifically, actually uh, tried to uh, to soften or or to uh, mitigate is the term that I actually used the impact of the Obama administration's regime change policies in both Libya and Syria. Um, they they obviously were not in a position to directly uh, change or uh, to to prevent the Obama administration from pursuing uh, the regime change policies that it did in in Libya and Syria. But what the military leadership did was to use uh, means that it had at its disposal that were really beyond the control of the uh, White House and the State Department, who were uh, really, you know, the, the State Department was uh, leading the charge. That is, of course, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was leading the charge um, uh, initially in both Libya and Syria. And then eventually, of course, it was uh, John Kerry, who took over the State Department and continued that policy in Syria. But uh, what the JCS and the uh, Pentagon uh, were doing here was using their ability to uh, communicate with their uh, partners in both uh, the military and uh, civilian uh, positions in both uh, Syria and Libya, either directly or indirectly. Uh, that's a That's a very indirect way of saying that they uh, they were sharing information or contacting people in those countries or 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 uh, friendly countries to the United States who had direct uh, connections with in this case Syria so they were using those means uh, to in a way undermine the policies uh, in a partial way clearly they they could not over overturn the policy they could only Try to uh, uh, to to soften it or or to mitigate it. Right. Uh, in the case of Libya, what the uh, JCS did, and this this is a story that uh, came out, uh, you know, in in the Washington Times. And I'm very glad that you're writing about this. I don't think you and I have had a chance to discuss this, but this is no. and people, you can find this on my blog, scotthorton.org. St- <clears throat> pardon me, scotthorton.org/slash/stress, and I have the links there. Right. It's just a few entries down. I have the links there to all four or five parts of this great series. They should have won a Pulitzer for this thing. It's Kelly Riddell and Jeffrey Scott Shapiro at the Washington Times. And they've, not these two, but that paper has published a lot of nonsense about Benghazi, this and that. But right. this this series itself is just absolutely the most crucial information. You can find the links uh, all, again, on my blog, Stress. So I'm so, sorry, right. go ahead and sum up uh, what, what we found out there, Gary. Right. So what the, um, what, what the JCS were doing in this case was, first of all, um, the, uh, and not just the JCS, but the military generally, they have their own intelligence agency, the Defense Intelligence uh, Agency, the DIA. And the DIA was uh, basically putting out um, very strong indications at that point that uh, that there was uh, that there was no uh, support, no uh, s- substantial basis for the State Department's uh, argument that there was n- it was necessary to use force against the Gaddafi regime in Libya because if they didn't do that, there would be a terrible massacre approaching genocidal proportions. That innocent 
civilians would be killed in such huge numbers that it would be something like the genocide in Rwanda. Um, and of course, it was uh, uh, Samantha Power uh, and uh, others who were embracing this humanitarian argument for intervention, the responsibility to protect argument that was being uh, put forward by Hillary Clinton and the State Department. Uh, so, first of all, the DIA was really countering that very sharply, saying, we find no evidence to support this argument. It's essentially, they said, not essentially, specifically, explicitly, the DIA uh, assessed that, that this was essentially a, uh, a mere matter of uh, speculation by the uh, people who were arguing that within the administration. So that was the first thing they did. The second thing that the uh, the JCS themselves did was to authorize one of their intelligence assets to make contact directly with the Gaddafi regime. And and the primary contact was uh, Gaddafi's son, Saif um, uh, Gaddafi. Um, and in the process of those contacts, the uh, uh, the representative of the JCS, uh, indirect, uh, nevertheless important uh, representative of the JCS, was suggesting that the U.S. military uh, did not approve of this policy, that it was beyond their control. They were unable to prevent Obama from doing this. Um, and they were uh, suggesting that the um, uh, that, that the Gaddafi administration should do its best to make a deal Forget about the United States. They should make a deal with the French. The French were their best uh, possibility for trying to mitigate the uh, the overall uh, uh, regime change strategy of, of the U.S. and NATO. Um, and in the process of doing this, uh, most important thing they did was to uh, work with, cooperate with uh, Gaddafi, the Gaddafi regime, in putting forward a proposal. And this was after the, the NATO bombing had begun. Uh, in 2011, early, uh, I guess it was March 2011, uh, promoting a proposal for a ceasefire, uh, in which the, uh, the Gaddafi regime was, was prepared to meet these, the essential demand that Gaddafi step down. Um, and the only, um, conditions on that proposal or that offer to step down, uh, essentially were three conditions. One, that the, uh, uh, that that uh, Gaddafi family um, be uh, that, that Gaddafi be given safe safe passage. That Gaddafi family uh, have the uh, sanctions uh, that were being levied against it lifted, and that the uh, Syrian excuse me the Libyan army would uh, not be deprived of its ability to resist the jihadists who were uh, a threat to take over in Libya. So so uh, essentially, if in fact Merely getting rid of Gaddafi uh, and having a transition uh, were the fundamental uh, aim of of the U.S. policy. Then the U.S. administration, the Obama administration, the State Department should have embraced this. Instead, well, and that's the other huge part of it too. That what you just mentioned that they knew and they weren't under any illusion that Gaddafi was right when he said, "Hey, this fight is being led by Al Qaeda and Iraq veterans against me." Well, I mean, I. You know, I'm sure there were people in the administration who understood that, but of course... The... Well, I mean, that's in the Washington Times series as well. Right. That, but... that was what the DIA was telling the Pentagon right. and was telling the White House. Absolutely. But of course, those uh, 
people who were in thrall to the responsibility to protect, who, who had this uh, liberal interventionist bent and who were determined to carry it out, uh, would not hear anything of the sort. So, I mean, I can't, I don't think we can expect that, that they would absorb or, or accept uh, the facts as, as laid out by the DIA. So, so the point I want to make is that the, uh, the Obama administration, again, led by the State Department, rejected any negotiation with Libya, despite the fact that it would have, in fact, been a way out of the, uh, of the violence and could have prevented the chaos and the rise of, of the jihadist forces in Libya that followed. Mm-hmm. And by the uh, way, everyone, uh, if you check out my Twitter feed, I just put out the link to that uh, blog entry where I link to all the various, and it's the printer version too. I know the Washington Times website is a mess, but I link to the printer versions of all of those really great stories. They're really great stories by Jeffrey Scott Shapiro and Kelly Riddell there uh, that you can find. Um, but anyway, so so once Gaddafi's gone, then they got all these guns. Then what, Gareth? Well, of course, um, you know, we, we, we all pretty much know the story that followed that, uh, that, that despite the uh, the opportunity to to resolve this uh, peacefully, uh, the uh, State Department and and the others in the administration uh, pushing regime change wanted to arm the opposition and were determined to go ahead with this with this war uh, to to liberate uh, Libya, and uh, as a result, of course, uh, Gaddafi was captured ultimately. And uh, apparently, I can't. I, I've not found absolute proof of this, but but there are indications that he was tortured to death uh, after immediately after his capture. And and of course, we know Hillary Clinton when a, when she was told of of Gaddafi's having been killed, uh, joked, "We came, we saw, he died," and then giggled like a schoolgirl. We came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> Yeah, you yep. anticipated that one, I know, yeah. <laughs> I got it, I got it ready, loaded and ready to fire at a moment's notice. I, I hope that, uh, some Republican run, you know, puts that in their, uh, campaign ads, but anyway. Well, this, this, uh, issue definitely must be raised. Uh, not only by Republicans, but by Democrats in the coming months. So uh, listen, I, you know, you explain everything in such detail. I just want to kind of make sure that I, everybody's on the same page. We understand what's going on here. Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power and Susan Rice and, and Sidney Blumenthal and, um, uh, 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 what's her name? Slaughter. Uh, yeah, yeah. What's her name? Uh, what's her first uh, name? Anne Marie Slaughter. Uh, Anne Marie Slaughter. All these people, they decided they're going to have this regime change come hell or high water. The, the actual military tried to stop them and worked with Dennis Kucinich to try to negotiate some kind of peaceful resolution, and they got one, and they had one, and Hillary Clinton absolutely refused to accept the peace deal reached by the military. She was the leader of the diplomats over at the State Department. And oh, it's and and, and I've read this, this a few different places, too, that they actually had a lineup in the Oval Office with the chiefs and Robert Gates, the Republican Secretary of Defense on one side, and all the women Democrats on the other side, uh, and it was all the military men were anti-war, and uh, Obama sided with them. Not that the military guys all resigned or or refused or anything like that. They went to war, all right. Robert Gates ordered well, it, all right. Just, but just to add to that picture, um, it, it's interesting that uh, uh, Joe Biden was also against the. Libya um, regime change war, as well as John Brennan. So 
you know, th- this was a pretty strong lineup against uh, the uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's crowd. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it, it begs the question of what, what Obama's calculation, uh, his calculus was politically at that point. And I think that's a, a story that needs to be further, uh, uh, really mined for, for future, uh, uh, examination. Okay. So now, uh, we have this situation. I interviewed Seymour Hirsch last week and I, I doubt you probably heard it, but, um, you know, it's funny. I actually went back and listened to it, which I hardly ever do with these things, but I went back and listened to it and, um, the giant hole in his theory is that really much of what he's saying, I mean, it, obviously what the military was doing about it is new. But the part about, uh, yeah, you know, it looks like uh, the the uh, jihadists really dominate and the, the moderates are kind of marginal. I mean, this is the kind of thing we've been talking about on this show since 2011, not even 12, right? I mean, this is the case the whole time that... You know, unlike the Iraq war, where al-Qaeda in Iraq was a small part of the Sunni insurgency, in the Syria war, al-Qaeda in Iraq is the Sunni insurgency. It's been like that. Even David Sanger, here's my confirmation bias, but I'm right. David, even David Sanger at the New York Times said in 2012, all the guns that the CIA give to the mythical moderates end up in the hands of the head and suicide bombers. It's just a fact. It's been how it is, and everybody knows this. Everybody who cares about it has been crying about it for going on five years now, God damn it! And then, and then, but no, Obama just, he keeps trying to back the moderates, but somehow the jihadists keep getting the guns, and sooner or later we're going to figure this out and maybe get it right or something. Okay, but I just, I just want to point out one crucial point here that, um, that that needs to be taken it needs to be understood and that is that uh, it w- these these arms to the jihadists and uh, and extremists in Libya were coming from Qatar in particular and uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey they, they were all three picking out their own favorites and competing with one another uh, to pick a winner who they could uh, you know ch- pat themselves on the back about once uh, the uh, once, uh, you know, the, the Libyan government was overthrown and, and they had a new government that they could, uh, claim was, was their product. Um, and the Americans were, uh, essentially, you know, passive, but, um, you know, obviously not resisting this, but they were not, they were not happy with this. They found out, uh, I mean, when I say they, I mean, certain people outside the people who were really pushing the regime change policy, Realized, uh, uh, that, that they were really being had by their so-called allies. And this is part of this bigger problem, this bigger, uh, picture that, uh, I, I think has to be the, the primary, uh, the, the primary, uh, focus for analysis in these, uh, in these months. And that is the way in which the U.S. has given its Middle East allies free reign to operate despite the knowledge that they were undermining the security of the region, the, the stability of the region, uh, essentially spreading chaos and threatening the, uh, the fundamental interests of the American people. And, and I think that's, that's the issue that we have to focus on. All right. Well, so, um, I mean, what was really new to you? Uh, was it pretty groundbreaking? The Hirsch piece about the military, Doing this kind of, you know, insubordination here. Well, I mean, that that part having to do with Libya, that was not new. And what what is new uh, in the Hirsch piece, of course, is about Syria. And right. yes, that is 
that is new that uh, that the military actually um, uh, you know had this program to make contact with uh, Germany, Russia, and to my mind, strangely, Israel. We can talk about that more, but that was the that was the clinker in this that I you know didn't quite understand. Uh, but to to use those three governments to share information that they had reason to believe would end up uh, going uh, to the Syrian government and the Syrian military. Uh, that is intelligence on the jihadists in Syria. Um, and this was specifically uh, a, a way of trying to strengthen the ability of the Syrian uh, army to resist the very powerful pressures that were being brought to bear against them beginning in 2012 uh, by al-Nusra Front and other jihadists, as well as then ultimately Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, we should mention that Patrick Coburn wrote in the summer of 2014 that the military was passing intelligence to Assad through the Germans. But I don't believe, in fact, I went back and checked, and in that story he doesn't say, oh, and this has been going on for a few years now. I believe, as far as he knew, it was new after the fall of Mosul and the declaration of the caliphate. But, right, right, right. But he did break yeah. that back then. That, that's a good point. Um, and, and this, so, so, you know, what has never been published before is just how early this, uh, this program began in, to, in 2013. Hmm. And now, so, and this gets a little bit into your, um, your truth out story here. Well, it's kind of off the main point of this story, but, you know, anyway, on Yemen, I interviewed Mark Perry, uh, the, uh, DC reporter who, uh, I guess nowadays writes mostly for Al Jazeera, America.al Jazeera. Anyway, um, I interviewed him about the war in Yemen, and he was saying that, you know, as you could expect, that the generals were pissed off. Again, not like they're all quitting and, and, you know, going on the Sunday talk shows about it or anything like that. But they're mad that they're fighting for al-Qaeda right now. They've been fighting against al-Qaeda, only to al-Qaeda's benefit this whole time in Yemen. But, but they've been bombing them, trying to kill these guys, at least. And now Obama has America... Uh, working with the Saudis, flying as their air force against the Houthis, for the most part. And he even had a quote in there of one of these generals, I believe it's a general, said to Mark Perry, you know, John McCain cries that we are flying as Iran's air force in Iraq. Well, fine, but we're flying as al-Qaeda's air force in Yemen. And they're really question. upset about that. Are they? But are they doing anything about it other than, you know, typing in GPS coordinates for these Saudi pilots and holding their hands to their targets of innocent civilians or what? Yeah, that's that's a great quote, and it, it does in fact express precisely uh, the, the situation that exists here. Because, I mean, and and this is not what I talked about in my piece, as you know. But right, uh, we can get the, to that in a sec. Yeah, yeah. The, the the issue here of the United States government, uh, you know, essentially not just providing the original uh, bombs, smart bombs um, that were used by the Saudis beginning in their beginning in March of 2015, to bomb uh, Yemen. But when the Saudis ran out, and after the Saudis were known to have committed war crimes, targeting cities and saying that they were doing so because the population was known to be supporting the Houthis, the United States failed to do anything uh, to prevent the, the Saudis from continuing that war, but instead uh, made the decision to sell the Saudis more of the same bombs that were being used, that had been used in 2015. So, I mean, this is a remarkable record 
of complicity in Saudi war crimes. And the Obama administration, uh, you know, keeps saying, well, you know, we think that, that the Saudis should uh, should be using both military and political means. That's as far as they will go publicly in saying that they're not happy with what the Saudis are doing. Yeah. Well, and I'm sorry, because I should have better sourcing on this by now. And maybe I could go back and refer to that Mark Perry piece as well. But I guess the two best are still the Wall Street Journal and the Los Angeles Times about how it's Americans that are running the whole damn war, basically, for the Saudis. I mean, we got Saudi pilots flying American bought planes, but it's Americans who arm them, who clean them, who maintain them, who basically launch them, uh, who uh, give them the midair refueling that they need to get to their targets and back and all of this. And I doesn't see it right. seems like it's as much an American war as a Saudi one, because it, it doesn't seem like it even could happen if it wasn't being coordinated and run by the Americans. Well, I don't know if it's being coordinated. That would be going too far. I think that um, somehow or other, the United States is doing something which has never been covered, to my knowledge, in any detail, exactly what it is the United States is providing in terms of intelligence. Uh, and, of course, the United States isn't eager to talk about that now because of the targeting of civilians and, and the terrible uh, toll that uh, has been reported widely. Of, well, of and the I Yemen think civilians. the closest is the L.A. Times, and the L.A. Times did talk about that. It's our guys who are doing the targeting, they, American they, spies and military men. I, they they are not doing the targeting. I mean, they well, are picking the targets, helping to pick. No, the no targets. they're not picking targets. They're no? they're providing they're providing intelligence in some fashion. Uh, but I'm not. I'm I not thought sure. it was more specific than that. I have not seen anything actually indicating uh, that they're involved in targeting. In fact, uh, you know, they're explicitly denying that. Uh, and and obviously uh, they need to do that because otherwise they, the United States is really. I mean. In much in much worse shape in terms of complicity, uh, even than would be otherwise be the case. But but it's certainly it's serious enough at this point that this should be a major political issue, and it's simply not being discussed at all, as you as you know only too well. Yeah. All right. Now, if it's okay if I keep you just a little bit extra, can you talk about this very important article about? Uh, Iranian support for the Houthis. I mean, right. boy, talk about a narrative. You could almost license a war with Saddam Hussein about, you know, over the certainty of this narrative in American society right now. Well, I mean, this this story began when I learned that the uh, the so-called expert panel named by the United Nations Security Council uh, Committee on Sanctions Against Iran uh, had issued a report last June Um and uh, I first heard about it because there was a, uh, a Reuters story uh, that involved a, a leaked version of the of this panel, this expert panel report um, in May. Or, no, it was, I think it was late April uh, of 2015, which described the report and, you know, in lurid terms, talked about how it found that uh, that Iran had been arming the Houthis. Through uh, their shipments through the uh, the, the uh, Gulf of Aden, and uh, uh, you know that they had been intercepted, and and the panel had found the evidence that the the Iranians had done this uh, beginning as early as 2009, and and uh, and then you know so I I finally found the uh, the actual expert report, and 
uh, I, I can tell you that it is one of the worst, uh, most egregious cases of misleading, um, tendentious argumentation that I've ever seen in any kind of official document. I mean, it's just astonishing uh, that this group, which, by the way, is essentially representatives of uh, the uh, the United States and its Western allies, including, uh, and I include Japan there, uh, as well as Russia and China. Uh, and, of course, that meant that the U.S. had a majority and and clearly exercised that majority to insist on a report that would support the U.S. policy. So so this report, which uh, indicts Iran uh, for arming the Houthis, was was a political document that was uh, obviously timed uh, to serve the purpose of uh, justifying the Saudi war in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I did in my piece was to go back and look at the actual facts and uh, both the 2009 um, uh, episode which involved uh, the alleged uh, interception of a of an Iranian ship um, that uh, had weapons on it. It turned out that there were no weapons on it uh, at all, and uh, this was documented in U.S. Um, uh, in, in the Wikipedia, sorry, the WikiLeaks uh, documents that were released in 2011. Uh, so I was able to cite those. Now, the 2013 was the episode there was more complicated. Um, it, it turns out that, yes, uh, there were weapons, but the evidence strongly, strongly points to the fact that, that this was not uh, from Iran and it was not to the Houthis. It was from Yemeni uh, businessmen who were uh, intermediaries uh, and it was going to. Uh, it was going to Somalia. Um, so you got to stop and love this stuff sometimes. It was, the boat wasn't even coming from Iran to Yemen. It was leaving from Yemen headed west. That's right. And, and just by the way, and I'll just, just complete this thought. I didn't cover the most recent episode of a, of an allegation, which the Saudis made, um, in September which was that they had uh, intercepted another ship that was an Iranian ship that had weapons on it and it was uh, intended for the Houthis. Well, the U.S. Navy itself has said, uh, yeah, they, they knew all about this ship because they had inspected it. And uh, uh, it turns out that that was headed to Somalia as well. Man. All right. And so, but now let me make sure that I read you right here in this piece and, and hear you right here today. What you're telling me is that the the argument that even, well, you know, the Iranians have armed them some, even if what the war party says is overstated, yeah, there's a little to that. No, there's not a little to that. There's nothing to that. This is the basis. If you When you dig down to the bottom of the barrel of the talking points, you know, so-called kernel of truth, it ain't true. Uh, Scott, these are the two cases, 2009 and two thir- uh, 2013, are the two cases on which there is the most information, not much, but, but the most information on any of the uh, supposed uh, episodes of, of Iranian, alleged Iranian uh, arming of the Houthis. And in both of those cases, it's very clear that they were concocted by the government of Yemen for political purposes um, and uh, that, that this is... Uh, uh, a pack of lies that, that the U.S. government knows very well uh, is nothing but lies. 
man. All right, now, um, on the previous point here from the L.A. Times, I may have overstated what they say here, but just a little bit. It says the U.S. has been providing overhead surveillance information, intelligence and logistical support, as well as uh, setting up a command center inside Saudi Arabia for U.S. military personnel to work with the Royal Saudi Air Force for planning and launching the attacks, it says. And then it says, too, it quotes, this is a little bit less solid, but it's a spokesman for Kerry saying that, um, no, Kerry, it's, oh, no, no. Well, oh, it's Kerry's spokesman quoting Kerry, saying the U.S. would help with, quote, intelligence sharing, targeting assistance, and advisory and logistical support for strikes against Houthi targets. So that's, I don't know exactly the degree to which that's really yeah. happening on the ground, but those are their words. What is the date on that one, Scott? This is Los Angeles Times. With U.S. help, Saudi Arabia steps up airstrikes in Yemen March 26th from last year. So it's it's the very first days. This is the very first days of the offensive mm-hmm. when the United States was, you know, interested in publicly stating just how strongly supportive they were of the of the Saudis. Um and you know, I think that that the the point here is that the United States um was just totally out of its how should I put this? They they were out of of their depth in getting involved in this from the beginning. They just like everything else that the Obama administration has done, they didn't think through what they were doing at all. They were they were primarily thinking of this politically. They wanted to demonstrate that they were pro Saudi and anti Iranian. Um, and so you know the the whole public policy here is leaning so heavily in that direction. But I think uh, in that case. Kerry is overstating the degree to which the United States was actually doing targeting. I mean, I think that they were they, they were thinking of it as that we're going to support them in their targeting. We're going to give them information that will help them target. Um, so I'm not willing to go as far as to say that I, I just don't think that the uh, United States is doing the targeting for for the Saudis. I think they're picking their own targets. But but certainly with with some input of, yeah, uh, aerial uh, photographs from the United States, definitely. Well, and, you know, I had a, milita- a military guy say to me, I mean, all we're talking about here is typing in GPS coordinates. You know, it's right. not like there's that much to it. You know? Yeah, and it's bad, you know, it's bad intelligence because there's nothing there except photographs. You can't judge anything about a target from a photograph. It's ridiculous. It's the usual crap, you know. It's it's uh, a lack of serious effort to know what you're targeting, uh, or what, you're, what you're, you know, offering as a... Uh, of information for to the to the Saudis and the United States should in fact take um you know take the blame yeah. uh fully for this well Absolutely. and you know we might as well mention because it's the most important thing and I had the guy from Oxfam on the show last week to talk about it there are millions of innocent civilians whose lives are at risk right now uh, who are on the very brink of starvation it's the worst humanitarian crisis on the face of the planet as we speak about and this. once again you know, this is the crisis that the administration doesn't want to talk about and the news media doesn't want to talk about. They all want to they all want to talk about the 250,000 uh, civilians who have been killed in Syria. Right. Um, Quote, yeah, because they can use that as an excuse to kill more. But what's their angle here? You know? Yeah. I mean, the angle here, of course, is that the administration, you know, is embarrassed and they don't want this to be talked about. That's the angle. Yeah. All right, Gareth. Well, you're the best. Thanks very much for all your great journalism and your time here. 
Thanks again, Scott. Happy New Year, dude. All right, y'all. That's the great Gareth Porter. See why I've been interviewing him for nine years? Every week for nine years. <laughs> the great Gareth Porter. He writes for antiwar.com, for Truth Out, and for Middle East Eye. Appreciate it. See y'all.